Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to our new episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest on this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Wolfgang Giliar. Dr. Giliar is an osteopathic physician who currently serves as the Dean and Chief Academic Officer at the College of Osteopathic Medicine at Toro University, Nevada. Dr. Giliar is one of the great philosophers in the profession of medicine right now, and he joins us to discuss open systems thinking, a topic that was totally new to me, and the way this translates into education and how we look out for one another and our teams was absolutely fascinating. We also dive into an issue that continues to pop up, and a sense of anti-osteopathic medicine sentiment. It's something that Dr. Giliar has addressed many times in the past. I did appreciate him discussing it once again, because he's covered this before, obviously. We get into the origins of where this comes from, as well as what the road forward looks like, acknowledging the importance of osteopathic medicine. We also get into another subject that is dear to my heart, point-of-care ultrasound. It's something that, you know, I didn't get the opportunity to learn when I was a medical student or a resident, and I really look forward to learning now. I continue to see how it's growing across the country and really across the world. It's a critical element of medical education, and Dr. Giliar and the College of Osteopathic Medicine at Toro University, Nevada, have really taken an interesting approach to this, and talking about this with him was outstanding and really illuminating and very, very exciting. Before we get to our conversation, just want to remind everybody to please subscribe to Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it, we're there. A rating and a review really helps us out. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find the archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com, and you can hit me on Twitter anytime at ETS Show. Love to interact with folks who are enjoying the episodes or have feedback or comments. You can find me on my email or on Twitter anytime. And so now, having said all that, without further ado, Dr. Wolfgang Giliar. Wolfgang, welcome to Explore the Space podcast. I'm really happy you're here. Thank you for coming on. Likewise, I'm pleased to be here and join you. So I was doing some some research, getting ready for this conversation. And I, as I like to do, I like to do a little, you know, I, I like to use Google. I like to learn about people. I like to ask around, especially if it's someone that I haven't met in person yet, haven't sat down and had a meal with or been to a conference with. I like to kind of get a gestalt. And there was one thing that's popped up for me, and I want to open with it. Why do you like to live in a city or in a region that has a river running through it? Ah. That was one of those interviews. Yes, um, uh, that stuck out for me. And I sat with that. I was like, that is a great comment. 
and I don't understand it and I want to know more. So I want to start there. What is it about proximity to a river that is appealing to you? From a cognitive uh, explanation, it's probably related to the book uh, Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. Uh, He was searching all his life and all over the world until he found his own river. And I feel that I've been extremely fortunate to A, grow up uh, right next to the Rhine River, and I would spend times on the Rhine River in Germany. And then as time went on, um, I had contact points uh, like uh, I enjoy Paris, I enjoy Prague, and I enjoy the city of Bern in Switzerland, uh, where actually I actually got married. So the point is that uh, these uh, rivers somehow speak to me. And I think it is that flux and that gives me the dynamic way of, of how we are. And and, and probably, uh, if you ask me, uh, the sense of, of, of dynamism and, and the newness, and yet you're still sitting at the river, uh, I think all of that coming together, and that somehow this, this appeals to me. That sense of dynamism while still being by a river, I like that because I think that's why when people ask me, what do I like about hospital medicine? That's the answer that I give them. It's dynamic, it's kinetic, it's always moving, but yet there is a certain consistency in that that I find very appealing. And so I actually really like that. There's something else that you said in it, and it fit with this idea of you know movement and, and looking for your river and, and all of these sorts of things. You've described yourself as an open systems thinker. And I don't know that I fully understand what that is. It sounds great. I think I get, I I have my own interpretation of it, but given that you're the one that is the first person to use that term to describe themselves, what does it mean to be an open systems thinker? Oh, actually, that's wonderful. The way I, I see of much of what we do is, you know, we talk about being in silos. But we in the if you look at the human, the human body is a closed system, yet we are exchanging with the environment around us. And my thinking is that I like to blow off one of the tops or the sides, and then you go to the other systems, let's say, of economics, of philosophy, of uh, human interactions, and, uh, and anything that, that we have as some sort of logic, like geology or whatever. All this is is rubricizing, bringing things into categories. And I just feel that if you are creative, and I think that creative spark is it, is it's what's beyond that that lid that you are. And and while we are talking, that the funny thing is um, where I got that idea was I was invited to be a part of opening of a hospital and then a series of teaching in Japan. And uh, I was supposed to explain uh, the... Uh, uh, happenings of stroke. I'm a rehab guy. And so I uh, went there and I said, I understand what the figure for human is in Japanese. And I drew it up and those two twigs kind of left and right. And I said, and what happens is in in, in a stroke, you almost become, and I said, a prisoner uh, being called in, in those four walls. And I literally drew the top, the side, the bottom and the left side again. And they looked at me and they said, how did you know that? And I said, what? They said, this is what we use for prisoner. This is indeed the official word for prisoner in the Japanese characters. I had never seen it before, but that's the feeling that I thought you have when you have a stroke or or any uh, life-altering disorder or disease. And so then I went and I took the sponge and I said, the job is for us physicians 
to remove each of those bars so that we can be as free as we can be. And and that gave me the idea in three dimensions, we have to blow a lid off of something to be that open systems thinker. And that's where the idea came from. How have you developed that concept in terms of your your teaching and your education, not just in medicine, but I know you you travel all over the world. You're highly sought after. You meet with audiences of all different varieties. How does that type of mindset translate into educating other people? You know, uh, I I have I had a crucial experience when I was about I would say ten or eleven. No, actually a little older. I knew I wanted to be a physician since age eleven. But I also was thinking about going into arts because I I, I did fine and, and did nice things. And my aunt, who, who was a fashion designer, gave me a book on chemistry. And it said the status of chemistry today or something. And then she said to me, but don't believe everything that you read in there. And she taught me to question almost everything and anything. And with that questioning mind came the creative mind in the sense of saying, Wow, why not? Or why if it's not different? And that really, I think, that was a, a, a key, or as uh, uh, Salman Rushdie would say, a hinge moment in my life where I, I realized, wait a second, uh, not everything is the way it looks to be or it seems to be. And so uh, what I then think I can bring to education is just don't accept it for what we all teach you or say this is what it is. Ask a little deeper, is there something behind? Is there something that, that, that touches you or resonates with you? And then that brings it back to the authenticity. Because, Mark, my sense of education is if I reach the learner in an authentic, real, honest, direct way so that they are interested in the topic or wanting to get better or wanting to know more, I have done so much more than just conferred knowledge. And and I think that's part of what has been driving me all my life. Uh, whatever I have done, it's always what else can we do better or more or more insightful instead of saying status quo. And, you know, one of my sayings is I am never comfortable with being comfortable. So then do you like it when people disagree with you? Because one of the places where I get uncomfortable, I'm not I'm not great with conflict. I'm not great with disagreements and things like that. I don't I mean, I like debating. But do you like then, or do you kind of relish the opportunity of a student saying, Dr. Gilliard, that's not correct. I, I don't agree with that. I, I, and here's, here's my proof. Do you, do you like those moments? <laughs> I tell you, with a few more hair, gray hairs that I've gotten, and uh, in particularly the last 10, 15 years, I can t- in, in the engagement with the students, I've learned to take myself back. I've learned to put my, my ego more on the backside and become more patient with myself? And the answer to your question is yes. Even though I catch myself of not being able to always contain myself and say, oops, <laughs> and say, shoot. And, yeah. and, and, and that tells me I'm human. Um, it happened the other day again, and I just realized, you know, it, it's true. It's not that easy. And, and as, as they say, oh, yeah, test me and all of that. Um, we all have our limits. We all have our boundaries. And when you said about conflict, if, if something has taught me is, is if I see it as conflict, then I respond as conflict. But this morning, for instance, we had a staff meeting and faculty and, 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 and the deans and, and, and department chairs. And there was a moment where I knew this was all criticism. And it was a real stark 
stabbing criticism. And I said, you know, this is, sounds like uh, this is an, a complaint of yours. And a complaint is an unfulfilled need on your side that you now want me to meet. What is it that I can do so that you get what you feel you need and then how can we work together? There was dead silence. At that moment, I said, now let's open the discussion because I feel we will need to come to a solution. If you feel this way, don't give me your monkey on my desk so that I carry that monkey and you are free. Let's discuss this. And and Mark, it changed the way we discussed. And after about another 20 minutes, we all left the meeting because we had a solution of what the next step would be. And I just thought I have learned over time to take that criticism and say, I need to keep it and not be reactive and not even responsive of sometimes saying, just let it stay there and see what we can do. Because I think we actually want to go in the same direction. Otherwise, we don't work together. So it's a learned kind of thing. And overall, I was not very good about confrontation. But as time went on, I've learned to say, Wolfgang, it's not your ego. Now listen and go to the deeper moment. And 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 I think that's what the hopefully helps others then see, oh, wait a second, we can have the dialogue. And it's not about who is right or wrong, but more, it's about the thing. That is extraordinarily high level. And I suppose I shouldn't be remotely surprised that you're able to give us that perspective, given all that you've seen and done and accomplished. Is that a learned skill? Is that something that you can pat? Like when you get to sit down with someone who has an interest in moving into leadership or you're in that room with the other deans and the faculty and the department chairs, is this something where you can mentor up someone to be able to utilize that skill? Absolutely. Just like empathy, I think that can be taught, not perfectly, but but those, I think, are moments that I call realistic and, 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 and practical teaching moments. The first thing is about trust. Uh, and the, whoever you work with, when they realize that you don't have an agenda, a hidden agenda, or a, a sneaky way of, a, of, of, a, of, a, uh, 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 of an approach or strategy, when people notice, you know, and that's building that trust. Is you know he's in for for us getting better. He is into to making us a a more rounded group, or we we all pulling on the same oars in the same direction. Um, then you can start using it. And I used that for instance today, where I said, you know, look, we have come from a way where we have had the complaints and the various uh, disappointments and the difficulties because with COVID everything has been upended. And I said, right now we have struggled to maintain the teaching of 700 students, and yet our students are the best. They, I mean, not just our students, every medical student, every health profession students, in my opinion, they are doing their best they can while we struggle. And I said, if we now realize what's good out of all of this, we can move forward when things hopefully are better in the next year or so. And so coming back to your question, it is teachable. And I think the real leadership uh, nugget of this is we need to teach authenticity and say, what did this feel like to you right now? And then how can we get out of this in the sense of blaming, finger pointing, or any of that of saying, how did this really feel to you? Because, you know, we are not we are not meant, I think, to, to be aggressive immediately, especially the way we have, you know, uh, been raised in our Western civilization, where it always says, uh, and uh, treat uh, uh, thy neighbor as yourself. And I think we need to return this to say, treat yourself as thy neighbor, 
because we've almost gone overboard in that direction. But uh, bringing it back to us uh, individually is if you show respect to the other person and say, how did this feel to you? Or what did you learn from this? Without having to feel repercussions, I feel uh, education will take off. And that's something that I'm trying to demonstrate and also instill in others that they say, actually, this can work. You know, one of the things that comes up in those sorts of situations, right? Someone will say something or you'll be in that place where there's the potential for friction or conflict. We can feel very reactive. Like you said, you know, you bring this approach of how did it make you feel? Sometimes we get caught up in how do I feel and we react to that. And one of the controversies where I think that comes up, and I know it's come up for you, and I imagine it is tiresome and probably annoying. I, I can't think of the right words for you, and I'm curious to get your take on it. We do have this recapitulation of the controversy over the DO degree, the Doctor of Osteopathy degree in the United States. I've seen it several times over the course of my career. I'm tired of it. <laughs> I'll be quite honest. I don't fully understand. I understand where it comes from. I just don't understand why it's still here. And I'm not naive. I know that there are a wide variety of ways that you can train in this country to become a physician, to get licensed, to get board certified. I work with lots of people who are DOs. I know lots of people who are DOs. I know lots of doctors who I don't know or care which degree they have. It makes no difference to me. And I'm not going to ask them because it doesn't matter. They're really good physicians. They're really kind to their patients. They're great teammates. They're wonderful collaborators. Why are we still stuck in this annoying spot? You know, I don't know why we are stuck in this one other than it may be human nature that when they have to denigrate someone or to condescend to be condescending on someone they go to the lowest denominator, and then they say, you are the DO that they have heard in the in old days, 25, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. If you don't make it to MD school or what they called medical school at that time, um, why, why don't you think of osteopathic medical school? And, 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 and uh, it, 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 there was this schism, and it was not really until uh, much after uh, 1961 when the – AMA, I think, tried to bring the osteopathic uh, physicians, the DOs, into their fold by making them uh, just uh, uh, sign a paper and, and 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 pay 85 bucks or something, and therefore it showed it was the equivalent. And there was this professional tension until then. And actually, it was interesting. I know in the 60s I, or late 60s, even the osteopathic medicine, an MD was not allowed to refer patients to an osteopathic physician, or at that time they were called osteopaths. I think that that really was the beginning of um, new schools, new medical schools, uh, osteopathic medical schools, and through the growth that we have today. And perhaps some people remember this. Um, and so where I'm at right now is I'm just hoping that with more growth of osteopathic physicians graduating, we are really exponentially growing. We right now have about 151,000 um, DOs and, and 30,000 of them are medical students is the more of those numbers take over, we can explain more that we um, are fully-fledged physicians, we have the same licensure uh, requirements and therefore the same permissions, and that uh, our training is equivalent, and that at one moment I don't have to explain that again. It's uh, I, the only thing that I uh, can come to is, is perhaps Max Planck uh, once said, or I think he is quoted as saying, uh, look, it's not the uh, that good ideas get accepted by people from the status quo on and the older people 
it is uh, that new ideas get accepted by the old people dying out. And so I think um, we may just have to survive this one a few a few more times. But um, it's very unfortunate. Um, I don't like it. I saw how it happened a few weeks ago. And I, I just didn't. And then people called me up and they said, Wolfgang, what would you say to this? I said, look, I, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I just don't even want to say anything anymore. It's too unfortunate. But hopefully that uh, we learn how to educate the public, uh, that uh, we are there with commitment. We have excellent education. Um, I don't have the chip on the shoulder that I'm inferior or superior or anything. And um, hopefully more of our students and hopefully my students see that that I don't see it as anything uh, that we should really have to defend. But if we have to, we explain. And hopefully, um, Mark, you and I don't have to see this too often again. I definitely file this one in the bucket of places where medicine just cannot get out of its own way because we, we just shouldn't be having these conversations anymore. And, and I appreciate and acknowledge that you have created a boundary to say, look, I'm on the record. I've said what I'm going to say. Um, but yet on this podcast, to, to recapitulate some of that, it's still really helpful. I'm struck by the what your your perspective on the growth of the profession. And also, I want to get your sense of the strategic impact that the do explosivity that this exponential growth is going to have the the rise kind of to the fore of this where do you see the really sharp edge stuff where do you see those transitions happening the most actually that i i, I like that question because i i'm trying i am a collaborator and i'm looking at at connection points if if you look at it i i you may have seen it at one moment, I said osteopathic medicine is an American treasure, just as jazz is uh, an American treasure in music. And if you if if you, if you really allow me that extension, uh, I came to that idea: classical medicine is like classical music, where you have the composer, where you have the interpreter, and then the conductor, and the orchestra plays exactly how the conductor says this, this, and this way. And this is how classical medicine has been proposed and, and, and taught and educated, and everybody played their roles, their instrument, and you played in that big orchestra according to that one score by someone who composed it. Now, if you think that medicine could be like jazz, where the jazz musician becomes the composer, the uh, arranger, the interpreter, the conductor, uh, and, 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 and all other uh, flavors of it, is the, the is the variation that I think osteopathic medicine can bring, and and I think with that flavor coming together, it's almost like we can then formulate a, a next musical piece. And and the way I see this is, we have been trained virtually in community medicine. The osteopathic medicine, we did not have the large hospital systems that did the research, etc. That was on the scientific side of, of the MD world, and especially since Flexner uh, about 100 years ago, where it was able to go the scientific method, where we are strong or the osteopathic profession has been strong, is the real community biopsychosocial engagement. And I think this is where they, we have been very good at educating solid, excellent thinking and caring physicians all along, especially for generalist care. I prefer the term over primary care because I don't know about secondary care. So I say, generalist <laughs> care. <laughs> right? I like right? that. Yeah, right? for right? sure. So I like to say generalist care. And, um, and, and I think where the cutting edge will be 
is the osteopathic profession had always it always was challenged, always had to be better, always had to do something extra to show we are equal or we can do it. And now where we feel, hey, we are really connected as colleagues, we can bring the biopsychosocial spheres together in the form of let's go be patient-centered, be uh, student-centered, but at one side, um, we also have to be population and community-centered. And I think that amalgamation will be an incredible chance for creativity of the individual physician to really be uh, uh, the construct of, of medicine in ways that we even haven't thought about. I really believe in that, that, for instance, with AI, artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence, machine learning, all of that, we may find trends that we had never even realized existed. I mean, we talk about a zip code is perhaps more indicative than your genetic code. I mean, even the thought of that tells me of how we are interdigitated, how we are interrelated. And if there's a way that I would look at the physician of the future is what I call the intelligent, coordinated, technologically very savvy savvy physician who also cares on the one-to-one so that we can deliver the best community care. So that would be my definition. The fact that you frame that definition with both the one-on-one care and then the community slash population care is really striking to me because I think that the call to action for physicians around the United States is that acknowledgement that it's the one-to-one bedside care, but that we are also curators and people who can who must work hard to protect the public health at the population level. And I know that there's one very tangible thing that you're doing in this space. You and I are both friends with Renee Diversdal, and that you are collaborating with Vave Health to do portable ultrasound work, acknowledging that the state of Nevada has an opportunity for improvement around obstetric health. And I'm curious to understand, knowing you have a lot of levers you could pull, given the role that you play as the dean, given your reputation internationally, why did you decide to act there? Why did you decide portable ultrasound focusing on obstetrics? That's a a great, great question. I believe the action really is local. And um, whatever we do, if you do it well and, and qualitatively at a high level, wherever you are, that's where you can leave the stones that other people can build their stones around to this. When I became dean here in, in, in Toro, Nevada, in, in, in Henderson, which is a stone's throw away from what I call the glitzy strip, which is still, you know, hey, that's, that's Las Vegas. But I said to myself, what can we do to really address the social needs that we face? We are one of the states with a, a dire physician shortage. And we are one of the worst, if not the worst, states with prenatal care. So uh, about uh, when POCUS, uh, I was introduced to POCUS, I mean, to uh, to, to WAVE, um, it's one of my dreams came true because I wanted to introduce um, the ability to give the point-of-care ultrasound, a handheld ultrasound, to each of our students as a new tool of learning. I call it the the iPhone of a stethoscope. So what the iPhone is to the regular telephone, I see the ultrasound to to the stethoscope. And the reason I thought this would be the right way to go is it's an interesting technology. 
It is the cutting edge of ways of of actually reducing anything between the patient and and uh, and the doctor. If you look at it, Mark, in my opinion, we have placed everything between the patient and the doctor. And and for instance, laboratory studies, uh, imaging studies, it literally has increased the distance between the doctor and the patient. This one is in line with the osteopathic profession where we touch and you have a direct component with it with the patient. And now you bring the ultrasound in where you directly see and you can show and you can communicate with the patient what you are seeing and you're getting additional information without having make to make a referral, without sending to an MRI, without sending it for, for further laboratory studies. It just adds to your armamentarium of examining a patient right there and then. And, and so I thought that the ultrasound and now WAVE, which is the, the latest cutting edge without any tethering of, uh, uh, of, of, of wires or anything, and then you can actually get the data of what you have and what you find, and you can disseminate this to friends, to colleagues. I thought that is really one of those cutting-edge places that, that my students, I was hoping and will hope, and I think we can do it now because we found the money, is that, that they will all travel away with one of those ultrasound probes. And when they graduate starting next year, hopefully, they will all be able to have one and, and, and be at the forefront of that. And that then allows us to go. And we, uh, I can say we, we were the fortunate recipients of a grant uh, on this to provide the best care for underserved women and prenatal care is that we integrate this to the point where I believe education, good education brings better care and better care brings better education. This is how we close the loop. And so we now will be bringing the entire education of women's health from literally from cradle to grave in a way that is longitudinally planned, continual and integrated in a way. And so I really feel if our students have that kind of view, both with the ultrasound and then the longitudinal view, uh, they will uh, be alert to uh, societal needs. They will be alert to the problems with uh, with care, as well as uh, particular chances then to provide better care. And then I think that kind of thinking will bring them again to the forefront of being a better physician. It's just seismic stuff. It's it's absolutely seismic stuff. There's there's a variety of things if I was to say I want you to write a book about, but that's number 1 now. Is what happens over the next 36 months with that what happens with your next like two or three graduating classes. When I was a medical student and a resident like the 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 concept was already there. And the idea of how do we get this into the hands of, of the students and the residents so that they can have this tool for forever. Like the, the conversations were happening. It didn't actually come together. But the fact that now it's actually happening and it's not just one department, it's entire classes of medical students. It's seismic stuff. It's incredibly exciting. I mean, you must be just vibrating with possibility here. Yeah, which is, uh, which is also at the same time. Um energy robbing in a way because I get tired. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's true. It's true because, okay, where, where do we go next? Yeah. But I will tell you, and, and, and that, that, that leads back to the initial thing. When we were able to uh, commit to this grant writing, and I'm thankful to everyone at the school who helped me, but our senior associate dean, when I brought the idea to him, and he actually on his own came back after the weekend. We just said, let's, let's just... Uh, spend some time each other and then see what we can do because we knew we didn't have that much time 
and we had to kind of really formulate it together. He came from the education side and said, Wolfgang, I think we could do this, this, and this. And then I brought it to our um, uh, chairs and uh, and gave the ideas to them because that was the only way I could communicate fast enough. And they all thought it was phenomenal. They all thought it was a great idea to bring the ultrasound to uh, the sense of prenatal care for the underserved. And, and, you know, it was everybody said, wow, let's do this. I knew, Mark, once everybody bought in without hesitation, I knew we had a winner on our hand because it was resonating to everyone. And I could then literally say to the other person that we wrote with and then the other group that helped us write is let's just take these pieces and bring them together. And 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 ultimately, we, we did get the grant. We were not, have not been able to fully announce it yet because we, we want to make a nice announcement and that should be coming soon. And I'm excited about it. But I will tell you the fact that uh, this agency and, and this group um, was able to to see this for what we think it is and then actually awarded us the grant. And that was that just came in as a nice holiday gift. I will tell you, we are charged and we, we are stoked. We're literally stoked about this. <laughs> it's it's going to be wonderful to follow that progress, too. It's It's sort of like, all right, cool. You're about to pull the cover back on the book and then get into the pages inside. And you're just in that like phase zero of this but it'll be really really interesting to follow and and i'm excited about it too because it's it's a future that i have in my professional career been hearing about for a while this is really exciting that at the student level it's going to be implemented but uh, i do want to just note as we kind of move towards the end here this sort of idea the book analogy i don't want to let this episode and this conversation with you close without noting that in the last 30 minutes you've quoted herman hesse max Planck and Salman Rushdie. And I love that. And I want to get a sense from you of how do you use the great writers? How do you use the great works as augmentation, not just for yourself, but also for your approach to education and teaching? You know, I like quotes and I am always looking for a good quote that fits something. But what I've learned is that everyone Every single person brings something to the plate. And in the philosophers, big or small, they all say something. And, and, and there's always a nugget in each book, in each text, in each picture that you see that appeals to you. And they resonate. And uh, let me change the, the, very quickly the word. The word resonate leads to sound. And we always say, hey, are you sound? Are you healthy? So ultimately, I look for that resonance, and I find it in the books, I find it in the music, I find it in the in the paintings or the art, and I find it in in in, in an exchange with even something like this right now. I mean, you got me to think, you got me to speak, and I didn't prepare, you didn't prepare, but this flowed literally back to your flow of the river is is by not worrying about the outcome and not worrying about looking smart or good or smart uh, better but by just saying let's do this right now authentically and it's one of my big words is to be authentic and that authenticity if you start to resonate it and, and you were able to get me to resonate in that regard uh, i feel that's that's what then mean we can do in education and i think if i could conclude with this all patients look for that resonance that's what you bring to them. I know when you approach them and they see you smile and they see you nod, they know you are in their space for them. 
And I want our students to feel the same way and one day just carry forward and say, my God, we can really move mountains by seeing a patient as who or she, how he or she is in any which way unencumbered. And I really feel if that edge, you and I can move forward, medicine will really move in ways that that the old things would have never been able to do. I will just say that your authenticity and your approach to all of this is extraordinarily resonant, and it's very much appreciated. With all of the various demands on your time, your energy, and your schedule as the dean, that you would take some time to come on Explore the Space is something I do not take for granted. I really appreciate. This has been an extraordinary discussion. I cannot wait to do it again. Wolfgang, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I thank you. I really do. I appreciate the opportunity, and and uh, it was fun, and I was looking forward to it, to, to break up my my routines of things of, you know, you know how that goes. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. Well, we will, we will find an opportunity to help break up your routine again sometime soon, but thank you for coming. Thank you. Appreciate it. My thanks once again to Dr. Gilliar for joining us on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. And thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www. Creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Always appreciate those who take the time to check out what we're doing here. Really excited about what we've got in the archive. Definitely take a look, www.explorethespaceshow.com. Hit me on Twitter at ETS Show. Email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. We've got lots more great content coming as well, so definitely click subscribe wherever you like to download your shows. We will be back soon with more great content. Until then, make sure to take care of yourselves, wear your masks, maintain physical distancing, wash your hands, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.